0: Times uh, like this, Dr. Seuss always comes in handy. He wrote, uh, he wrote this, uh, he said, don't cry because it's over, smile because it happened. And uh, that's the way we look at all this. We, we smile because it happened here. And uh, Laurel and I just uh, so much, again, just appreciate you all. Uh, Laurel and I are at this place right now where uh, we'll miss the ministry here of Northwest Hills. We'll miss all of you a lot more. And we're just very, very thankful about how God has blessed us here. So thank you once again. Uh, when I was a kid, there was a story that went around in the churches uh, where I grew up south of the Mason-Dixon line. It was just a short little one about a, a church member who uh, came along to say goodbye to a pastor who was moving on. And, and he said, Pastor, preacher, he actually said, Preacher, preacher, I'm sorry you're leaving because we never knew what sin was till you came along. <laughs> hmm, how are you supposed to take that, right? <laughs> Uh, well, hopefully my teaching and my example has helped some of you uh, in a more definitive way than that. But what's left to say here on this day? If I'm, if I'm teaching my last uh, uh, sermon from scripture here, what should it be on? I prayed long and, uh, and hard over this, asking God, what do you want Northwest Hills to hear from your word, Lord? What, are they, what do you want Northwest Hills to hear from your word today as I teach this one last time? And I thought about the subject matter of that. And I thought, you know, the, there were things that came to mind. They all seemed good, but I, I thought God was really telling me that uh, he would lead me to emphasize something that I had already taught throughout my ministry here. And sure enough, after uh, a lot of consideration, it became very clear to me what passage God had in mind for, uh, for me to teach today. I just couldn't shake it off. This is the one that fits. And I'm, it's interesting because I'm almost positive that uh, i have i've preached hundreds literally hundreds of sermons here i don't think i've ever taught on this uh this passage of scripture it's in the gospel of luke it's in chapter 14 of luke starts at verse 16 so if you want to get a bible open that'd be great to, to have you know where this is what it says you can refer to it later the gospel of luke chapter 14 verse 16 an interesting little passage here. It's a story told at a dinner, about a dinner, at a dinner, about a dinner. I'm hoping and praying that God will remind you of it sometimes when you're having dinner or when the word dinner is mentioned. I'm praying that in the future, this will come back to you sometimes. It was told by Jesus, this story. He was invited to the home of a Pharisee on a Sabbath day. He went to the dinner. And as all this interaction is going on, this big Sabbath day dinner, all the conversations are occurring. Jesus had an opportunity to clarify a bit about what it means to be a genuine worshiper of God. Not just someone who shows up to the church and worships for an hour and goes away, but someone who actually lives worshiping God with their life every day, every minute of the day. Jesus got to clarify that about a genuine worshiper. And he talked about the benefits of living that way, the blessings that come from God when you live in that way. And as he explained about that, he he, uh, also mentioned the incredible life that will be enjoyed by those who will someday live in God's eternal kingdom. And when he mentioned that in particular, that prompted one of the other dinner guests there to exclaim this, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And we don't know if that was a spontaneous, sincere exclamation of someone who was just really excited about what he'd been hearing and learning from Jesus, or if it was just this pious outburst of this falsely devout man who thought, oh, this is the right time, you know, where you throw in the hallelujah, the praise the Lord, this is the right thing for me to say at the time. We don't know exactly where he was at on that, but whatever he was doing there, it created an opportunity for Jesus to tell this story. A story that was important then, and it's important now to us too. So I'll start here. uh, Verse 16 of uh, Luke chapter 14. But he, Jesus, said to him, the man who shouted this out, he begins to tell a story. A man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent out his uh, servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I've bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've bought, the, uh, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've married a wife and for that reason, I cannot come. And the servant came back and reported this to his master And then this head of the household became angry and said to his servant, well, go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the the poor and the crippled and the blind and lame. And the slave said, "Uh, Master, what you commanded has been done and still there's room. The master said to the servant, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner." You might recognize this story. It's a short story. This is one of Jesus' parables. Parables, uh, brief stories that Jesus told that typically have one main point, but they usually also reveal uh, a lot of other truths about God and about people. One of the great aspects about this parable is that it reveals and emphasizes that God is a loving and a seeking God. A loving and a seeking God. In the story, God is represented here by the man who plans this incredible dinner, this feast and invites many to come to it and partake of the food, enjoy the friendship there, the fun that would take place in his obviously wonderful uh, mansion. He's obviously a a man of great means who wants to share his bounty with others. And that we understand here is a a picture of God in this parable. God is himself incomparably good. I mean, his person is just incredible beyond what we could could wrap our, our minds around. His wealth is unlimited and he wants people to enjoy him he wants people to enjoy his glory his goodness his joy his close fellowship he wants people to live with him in his incredible eternal kingdom and so god invites people to know him and enter into the kingdom family he god initiates all this he initiates contact with people to to make that happen he seeks people to come and enjoy him and all the blessings he has to offer, and he doesn't have to do that. He has never had to do that. It's not necessary for God to do so. He doesn't owe any of us anything, and as this parable reminds us, we humans are a real mess. We're ju- we're just all messed up as humans. When when I was down in California earlier this summer. Uh, doing some time at the family ranch that that happens down there. and When we're down there, we always take a little time to, to drive up a little bit further into the foothills from where we are, where the Thule River flows down, and where you get those, uh, those beautiful pools that you can jump in in the river, where you get those natural slides that you can slide over waterfalls and the whole thing. It's an awesome place, and we always go there. And uh, it's really interesting, though, when we go there because... Because it's so beautiful, and yet you'll be walking around, you'll turn around, and you'll see somebody graffitied all over a rock. It's like, well, what's that for? Who would think of doing something like that in a beautiful place like this? And then you'll find, you'll find places where people just left their trash. You'll find places where, uh, where broken glass, you know, somebody broke a bottle, like, right on a place, right next to a beautiful waterfall. You so, say, well, who would even think of bringing a glass bottle there? And if you did, why would you break it there? And if you did, why would you leave it there for somebody else to step on and then there's always these, these guys who, you know, mostly all the places you jump in, nice and safe. You know, you can ju- take a nice jump into a deep pool from a high spot. But there's this one place there where we go and it's a really high place. It's, it's very high and you jump off and, and you only have this very small area of pool to go into because there's rocks underwater on both sides. And most people jump and they, they go up there and uh, most people shouldn't be jumping, I gotta tell you. You shouldn't be jumping because you have to hit that one spot in order to be safe. But you know, everybody's kind of egging everybody else on, so people go up there and jump. And it's dangerous. And there's, there's one guy who was there this summer, and he was actually an accomplished diver, right? And so he's actually diving in, you know, doing these swan dive kinds of things into this tiny little pool area. But the thing is, as we're watching him, and as we get to know him after being there a couple of times, we realize when he's up on top, just before he dives every time, he chugs some beer... And he takes a hit off a marijuana cigarette. And then he dives. And we're thinking like, how long until that affects you and you, you kill yourself? You see, we humans, we've just got problems. And that's just the, down at the lower level, right, of, of like the, our problems. We mess up lots of things. We mess up relationships. We mess up the planet. We start wars. We, we do all kinds of crazy things. But here's God who still loves us. We're unworthy of his time. We're unworthy of his attention. And God still comes after us. We are not like God. We fall short of wisdom and understanding and righteousness and love all the time. He never does. He never falls short. But we fall short in those things continually. In our natural state, also, we're just spiritually dull. We're dull in regard to our own spiritual life. We're not grasping things that God is doing around us that he's trying to teach. But you know what? God is still a loving God. Oh, consider these three individuals when we, when we talk about, about people being dull. There are three men who are mentioned in this, in this parable who are invited to the dinner, and they're really representative of our human race, especially in their capacity for foolishness. Because they, uh, they receive an invitation to a spectacular event with a spectacular person, but they don't grasp the greatness of the opportunity that has come to them. Not only do they overlook the joy they could experience by participating in this, they they fail to see that this is an opening to build a relationship with a really great person. Someone who could bless them in many ways. Someone who could advise them in many ways. Someone who could change their destiny positively. And they're not grasping that they've been invited to interact with this person. And they're also lacking in appreciation they're lacking in gratitude, even respect for this one who has honored them with this invitation. He was a great man. He had a huge house. He had businesses. He didn't have to invite them, but he did anyway because they were neighbors. Hey, come on in, get to know me. But they didn't think much of it. And that's just all a picture of how the human race can be so dull generally, but think about it in terms of God. Here's God who's reaching out and reaching out And we're just spiritually dull and just not responding, not even respecting, not even being thankful that God is is that kind of God who's reaching out to us. In case you didn't catch some of the details of the story, let's just back up so you make sure you get it and you you get this picture that Jesus is painting. And that day and place when invitations were made for a dinner like this they were made much different than we, we make them today. You know, we have mail, uh, snail mail. We have email. We've got uh, iPhones and uh, other options, you know, to send out messages, whatever. But then and there, invitations were delivered face-to-face and verbally. In this case, a servant was sent out to each person invited. The servant told the invitees of the invitation they were receiving. Typically, when that happened now, on those days, when that invitation was delivered, only a day of the event was given. Sometimes it might even be like a two-day time frame. We'd say we're going to do this, say Friday, Saturday, and that's how how the 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 the, uh, the time frame was first brought out. No specific time was mentioned. First of all, because because think about it, they tracked time much more loosely than we track it today. We live by our calendars, right, and our alarms that are on our our eye calendars and and we have our watches that beep that have, uh, you know, the time on it for us, and we have clocks, and we've got all this stuff, but we track time closely. But they didn't do that in those days. It was much more loose. Also, an exact time for a dinner like this was not specified because they didn't have the conveniences that we have today to, to make preparations and make everything come off just on time. They didn't have things like grocery stores full of food and refrigerators to store things in and and nice ovens that you can cook quickly in and fast means of transportation to get it all together. So you you put on a big feast like this, that was quite a big deal. And it was difficult to gauge in advance exactly when the dinner would begin. And so then when when the feast was just about to happen, when it was just about ready to go, then there would be a second notification that would go out to the people who were invited in the first place. The second notification would say, hey, it's just about time, start coming, start, start getting there. And people who would, who would be ready saying, oh, we're looking forward to this, they'd grab their stuff and they'd, they'd get up and go. Just a, a polite way of responding in that day when that, when that happened, when the first invitation went out, was really just to do nothing. See, you, if someone gave you that first invitation and you didn't say, I'm not coming, they assumed you were coming. They assumed that, that, that you would be attending. And, uh, and, and if, you, if you weren't, then, then you were supposed to let them know. But, but the three in the story have this opportunity. Everybody had an opportunity. You could say you weren't coming if you weren't coming. The three in the story, they had the opportunity, but, but they didn't value the invitation enough or the person who was giving it to care anything about it. And, and so they, they basically ignored it. But of course, by by not formally declining it, they they indicated they were going to be there. But really, they they didn't appreciate this. They didn't really have any intention of intending. They were were really signaling we're we're not going to be there, or they were signaling they were going to be there when they weren't. They were just so short sighted, they were so self absorbed, they just could care less. And so when the servant arrived the second time with the final notification, they were just apathetic just just not really intending on doing anything about it. And they began making these excuses. And, and if you notice, the, the excuses are, are interesting. And it also reveals them to be really big liars and really bad liars. Because the first one said in, in verse 18, you read this, I've bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. That was really a bad excuse and, and it was transparently false. Buying a piece of land, just like in our day, in that time... Place, There were cultural issues. There were business ways of doing things. It took a long time to buy a piece of land. But no one in their right mind would buy a piece of land without properly inspecting it because the kind of land they bought that day uh, at that time was, was agricultural. It, it was land you meant to use, not just sit around and look at. And, and so who's going to buy this agricultural land without looking at it first? And even if he had already bought it, there was no reason to hurry out, right, and expect it because he already owned it. It's still going to be his two days from now, terrible excuse. Second man goes along the same lines. Verse 19. I've bought five yoke of oxen, five teams of, of, of two, 10 oxen. I've got five teams here I bought and I'm going to try them out. Hmm. That's interesting. Try them out. You know, the word actually means I'm, I'm going out to test them. I'm going, I'm taking them for a test drive is what he says. Please consider me excused. Well, who does a test drive after you already bought it, right? But this is where he is. I'm taking it for a test drive. These teams were were meant for work, (laughs) not for pleasure. These were meant for work. So he's really going to go test them afterwards to see if they're going to work for him. They're going to be up to the job. I could wait until after the feast too, couldn't I? Just wait a couple of days. You already bought them. And then here's the third man. Verse 20, I've married a wife, and for that reason, I cannot come. Now, that resonates with us a little more, right? Maybe just, just a little bit more. But, but it's, it's more creative, but, but really, it's not a very good excuse. I mean, probably in his answer, most scholars think he was alluding back to the Old Testament law, where a man who was, who was just married, who just had a wedding, was excused from military service for one year. You could defer your military service. In fact, it was required. Stay home, get to know your wife, settle down, get your home settled. In a year, you'll go do your service. In a year, you'll go off to war. But for the year, take the time off. And so most scholars think he was probably trying to pick up on that a little bit. But, but going to war and going to a feast, two very different things. This isn't making sense. The angle here was a real stretch. And he surely knew in advance when he was getting married. And he could have declined earlier if there was a problem there. And a lot of people have pointed out, you know what? His wife probably could have come anyway, and she probably would have liked it. Bad excuse. Terrible excuses. But apparently many more than these three made such excuses because as the parable goes on, short as it is, sweet as it's told, you begin to realize that, that you know what? It says there that, that the expectation came. They began to realize there are going to be a lot of empty seats at this feast because a lot of other people were evidently making excuses as well. And one way or another, for whatever reasons, they were choosing not to show up. And you know what? That's the picture. That's exactly what many people do with God's invitations. He puts out these gracious invitations. He says, come along. And people just ignore it. People just ignore it. Such lack of appreciation, lack of insight, rudeness, and in all of this would so offend uh, such an important man, you can, you can understand that, that he would likely just cancel the dinner altogether. Okay, well, we're just not even going to do it. And I'm never going to attempt one of these dinners again. You almost get the feeling this is a, a guy who just moved into the city, just moved into the town, trying to connect with the people he knows. And don't you know if that's the case, he's thinking like, I think it's time we move again. Who wants to live in this place with these kind of people? But Jesus says, even though he was taken aback and angry, he didn't give up. Instead, he sent out his servant to invite others to come to his feast. And in telling that part of the story, Jesus gave us further understanding about God. Further understanding that that God is loving and gracious and passionate to share himself and his gifts and his blessings with us. And he's determined he's going to fill his eternal kingdom with people. He's so determined that he, that he keeps seeking and he keeps seeking and he keeps seeking people even though many of them ignore him and disrespect him and even reject him. That he's all out passionate, God is, about saving people and bringing them into the family, making them citizens of God's kingdom right now so that when they die and, and they go into eternity, they're already a part of the kingdom. That's how awesomely good God is, that he just keeps seeking that and seeking that for people. And that goodness, you know, flows down to us who already are part of his his family and his kingdom. And it flows down to us, especially in this, that you see in this parable, the picture, that God appoints us to join with him in this great endeavor. He gives us the privilege and the joy of serving him in this most important mission ever in the history of the universe. The mission of seeking spiritually dead people, spiritually lost people, sinful people who are far from God now and who will, if something doesn't happen, be condemned to an eternity totally apart from God. The mission of turning as many of them uh, to God as possible, helping them to accept God's invitation to join his family and become part of his kingdom. That's what he's blessed us with. That's what he's blessed us with. What more important, what more fulfilling endeavor could we ever take up than that? How could we ever be so privileged that we would be invited into that? But God does it. God appoints us to it. And it's an incredible blessing. It's an incredible honor. But you know what? Sometimes we lose sight of the, great, of, of the greatness of that, that has been given to us. We just lose sight of it. We, we don't grasp what, what we're, we really have been invited into. I can remember years ago now, many, many years ago now, of, of being in a church and being in a place where uh, there was a new couple that showed up. And it was very obvious as I talked to them that they, they didn't belong to any church. They were just kind of out searching around. They were feeling like we need to get to know God, but we don't know how. And they, and they were just they were traveling around, just stopping in at different places, you know, on Sundays and trying to figure out if they could learn something about God. And I was greeting them warmly and and trying to introduce them around to others. And I went to one person who was very, very skilled and gifted at being able to welcome people in. And uh, and I just said, hey, quickly, come here. So this will only take about five or 10 minutes of your time at the most. But here's this couple, and they really need to know that somebody cares about them besides just the pastor. And they really need someone that, that they could, that's, you know, you're like them, and it would be a good connection, and you could help them along the way. I said, just, just please, would you just go over and talk to them? Because I have to go now anyway. And, and, uh, and this guy, who's, who's really a devout, true, good Christian, just looked at me and said, ah, I was really hoping to get out fishing early today, so I'm going to pass on this one. And he just turned around and said, i got to go, and he left. And I thought, oh, my goodness, how disappointing. And then the irony of it all hit me too, because Jesus said, what about his followers? He said, hey, come to me. I'll, I'll give you something important to do. I'll make you fishers of men. I'll make you one who can draw people into a relationship with God, who can, who can have people come and have their sins forgiven. I'll make you fishers of men. And, and here he was going off, not able to spend five or ten minutes because he wanted to go be a fisher of fish. Listen, fishing's great. It's fun. It's wonderful. But you see how we lose sight of the importance? You know, here, here's some folks, here's some people who are, who are lost. They're searching spiritually. What a privilege, what an opportunity to, to, to do something there. Well, in this parable, that appointment from God is shown to us by that servant in the story whom the master sends out with the invitation, whom he sends out again and again in, in ever-widening circles to reach more and more people. That servant, you know, represents us. It's every one of us who already have received salvation from God, already now belong to God, already now gratefully serve God. We are his privileged servants in this endeavor. And he calls us, and just like with this servant, he sends us out continually. He's always directing and guiding us in a way to serve him. And like the servant in the parable then, we should be passionate about this. You see that servant? He knew his master. He knew this very good person that he he worked for was just passionate about reaching people. And he said, if I'm the servant of that that master, I'm going to be just as passionate. He was all out into this as well. And that's what we should be too. Now listen, at at all times, at all times, in congregations, there is a tendency. I'm talking about every church I've ever been in and I know it happens. There's always a tendency of Christ followers to focus inwardly on ourselves, and to be passionate about what we want in our church and for ourselves. We get self-focused sometimes to the point where we start looking at the church like, this is my spiritual club. This is my church club. And so we begin to we begin to pull in. And you know, you can see it happening in groups all the time. And it's natural because we like each other and we've got good things going on. And you know what? It's a little harder to reach out more. It's a lot easier to look in more. And so in our groups, we just, we kind of pull in. And, and you know what? In times of transition, like what's going on in Northwest Hills right now, when, you know, leadership is changing and, and some ministry things are in change and all that, that's when we start thinking sometimes inwardly more than we should we can start thinking about, you know, we start dreaming about, oh, well, the church is changing. So I'm dreaming about this and I want to have this in my church and I want to have this in my church, you know? And we kind of come up with this mental list of things and, and, we, and we, we become advocates for it and we're wishing for them and we're talking to people about it. And you know what? I think it's fantastic that, that people love their church in that way, that they, they care so much about it. It's, that's a good thing, to love that and to want your church to be great. But it's so very common in the midst of that and so related to our sin nature, just to go, it's about us. It's about us. This church, it's all about us. You know, about that, we have to remember this, first of all. It's not our church. It's never our church. It's only our church in the sense of we, if we say, well, you know what? That's the congregation that, that we belong to, that we've committed to. In that sense, it's our church. But, but see, Scripture is very clear. Jesus himself said, what? I will build my church. And the scripture says, Jesus is the head of the church. And that Jesus is the one who rules it. Jesus is the one who directs it. Jesus is the one who guides it. He sets the agenda. And and so we always just need to step back and remember, it's not our church. It's God's church. He owns it and he rules over it. Second of all, we need to keep in mind then that God doesn't exist to serve the church. The church exists to serve God. Somehow we get it all turned around. Hey, we're a church. God's there for us. It's a good thing. Let's call on him. Let's see what he'll do for us today. No, no, no. The church exists for God and His agenda. God doesn't exist for us. Third, we need to remember that that we're to be passionate for and busy about what God wants His church to be passionate for and busy about. Not what we have decided apart from God that, that we think we all should be passionate for. And then fourth, we should remember this, that our focus is to be not on what we want the church to be and do, but what is it that God wants the church to be and do? Clearly, as we learn from this dinner story, God is, is passionate about outreach, as we've talked about here. He's passionate about the spiritually lost. And he's called the church to that, that mission. And so really, my, my parting challenge today comes from the scripture where, where we're learning this, that where we're learning this, that, that we should be outwardly focused and stay outwardly focused. We can still have many things internally that we enjoy, but we need to be outwardly focused not inwardly focused. We need to keep reaching out to the world, not turning inward to ourselves. We need to always be looking to serve, not to be served. Our mindset at church should not be, who's here to serve me today, but how can I serve? We should choose this as our priority. And we need to follow the model of outreach exemplified in this parable. I don't know if you caught this, but it's a great little model. How do we reach out? What should we be doing? If we say, let's do outreach, what does that mean? Number one, here's what we learned from the parable. Go out and bring in. Because that's what, that's what the master said to the servant. Go out and bring them in. Notice, notice. Not send out uh, just a broadcast, not send something in the mail that says, hey, we're here if you want to drop in. No, go out and bring them in. Verse 21, that's what the master said to the servant. Bring the people into my, fe- my feast. That's the mission of the church. Don't wait for people to come to church. Don't wait for people to come into God's family. Go out to them and help bring them into God's family, his church, his kingdom. Start with those nearby. That's what this story is picturing. Start with those nearby. But don't stop there. Go further than just nearby. Go go beyond. Go to places that aren't easy to get to. Go beyond the people who are the more privileged, who are the more refined, who are the more like you. Uh, Go beyond people who already have had plenty of opportunities to come. Keep reaching out further. After the the servant had already been to the nearby neighborhood folks and had some turns down, what did the the master say? Verse 21, go out. There it is again. Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city. That meant go out to to the people who aren't so privileged. You know, when we think of streets and lanes, you know, in our modern day city here, we're thinking like, yeah, nice curves, you know, manicured lawns and all that. Streets and lanes at that time was really referring, was referring to the old side streets and the back alleys where the more underprivileged people were living, where you'd find people who were struggling, where you'd find outcasts, where you'd find needy people who had few advocates. That's the places where the sinners who had messed up their lives live. That was a place where people get exploited. That's the place where, where, uh, where people are regarded with contempt by others in society. And the, the message of the master is, hey, go out to them. That takes the effort. But don't stop there either. Verse 23, he says, and then go out into the highways and along the hedges. In other words, go to the furthest away places where people live, where there are people who are far outside the, the mainstream of humanity. Go to the isolated, go to the most hard to find, go to the poorest, go to the most underprivileged, go to the people who've heard the least about Jesus. Go to the foreigners who are still trying to make their way in a new culture. Go to the outsiders, go go to those who've been chased away or even those who have run away on their own just to get away. And why go to them? Because God loves them too. And he wants them too in his eternal kingdom. And the mission of God's servants is to go out to them. Church, go out to them. And this, you know, you could apply this just as much, couldn't we, to people in our own community who are wealthy and live in great places and have all kinds of nice things. But you know what? They're still just spiritually dead and there's nobody reaching out to them. Whoever they are, go out to them. Bring them in. And the way to get them to to come along, well, that's part two of the model. Part one is go out and bring in. Don't wait for them to come to you. But when you go out, verse 23 compel them to come in. The master said to the servant, compel them to come into my house. Well, why would they have to be compelled to come in? Well, because they're going to be wary of you, because they're going to be doubtful about your sincerity. If we turn it into spiritual terms, they're going to be uh, doubtful about your message. They're probably likely going to be disbelieving in God, disbelieving that God cares about them, disbelieving that God loves them, disbelieving that God could make any difference in their lives. They're probably unconvinced that they'll be welcome in God's family, that anybody would take them into their church. So the message to the servant was compel them to come in. So over the years, you know, misguided Christians have thought that means, well, you just overwhelm them. You just don't give them a choice. You just overwhelm them and you, you use whatever means to make sure they get into your church. You just wear them out until they give in and you force them to join your church. And hey, if some persecution is required, go ahead and persecute some people. I mean, honestly, there have been Christians through the ages who've looked at this passage of Scripture and said, see, compel. That's why we're supposed to torture you into the church. It's it's utter foolishness, isn't it? First of all, because a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still, right? You you can't force someone to have a belief that they don't have, even if you torture them until they yell out, I agree. But it was also utterly foolish because it's utterly sinful to be devoid of love. The way we're to compel people is with love. We're to always show love. We're to never reach out without love. We're to have love for people. We're to love on people. And that will enable us to lead them to God. That will be the gift we give them. So compel them with love. And then the third uh, point in the model here that we see, after go out and bring in and compel them with love, is persevere persevere. Keep persevering in the face of apathy and opposition and rejection. The church that goes out will always experience apathy and opposition and rejection. So you better just decide right away, are you in it for the long haul or not? Because that's what it takes to be in it for the long haul. Rather than shutting down outreach because you've met some obstacles, keep on reaching out. Go out and bring in, compel them with love, and persevere. Mahatma Gandhi created a a movement that nobody thought would be successful in India in his day and time, and he said this about perseverance. He said, first they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then you win. First they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. Listen, what Corvallis needs, what Oregon needs, what America needs, what the world needs is people who will take this so seriously and go out and persevere. Billy Graham's wife, Ruth Bell Graham, uh, is no longer with us. She's deceased. Her father was a medical missionary. He was a doctor. Uh, He was a medical missionary who served for many, many years in China, helping very, very poor people. And after he retired and they were having a reunion of sorts and reminiscing about past days, he was asked by someone, well, how many people of those that you treated do you think are actually still alive today? Because he was an older man at this point. How many do you think are still alive? And he thought for a minute and he said, I'm guessing 90% of them are dead by now. To which he then added, and that's why the most important thing we did for them was spiritual, not physical. The most important thing was, was sharing the good news of Jesus with them of connecting them with God. Yes, I was a doctor. Yes, I helped them. But they all died. But by, by giving them spiritual food, by leading them to spiritual life, that makes the difference. Folks, we're the ones who have that. Nobody else is going to be going out with that, with that food. That is to be the church of Jesus Christ. Be that Northwest Hills. Be that. When I arrived in Corvallis 12 years ago and I came to Northwest Hills, I I quickly realized that this congregation just had unprecedented potential to impact the world for Jesus Christ, to to excel mightily at outreach, to touch many lives now and, and for generations to come. And so as we as leaders began to talk about that, we actually started writing it down on paper. What do we mean by that? One of the things we actually wrote, I'll read it right here—is at the time was we said, you know, when we look at the location of where we are, the education of the people here, all the various occupations people have, the skills, the gifts, our material resources uh, uh, that we have in our congregation, that creates for us a special opportunity to make a powerful worldwide impact for Jesus Christ. I could go into more detail on that. But we thought about, just think about all the potential here of, of of Christians in Corvallis being able to do something incredible. We thought, it's right there. It's right there, and it's possible. All it would take would be for us, number one, to become united. Like one family, remember that? We would become one family, as Jesus said. And if we had one passion, like in Mark 12, 30, where Jesus said, most important thing for you to do is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If we loved in that way, And then if we took seriously the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all the nations, if we put all that together, then we could do some incredible things in the ministry of God. Just incredible things. If we combined our brain power, our material wealth, our skills, our gifts, the opportunities we have to travel, all the connections we have with people here and people around the world, all of our energy, our physical strength, all the other resources that we could pull together, we would just be a mighty ministry force. And you know, a lot of great things have happened, have happened over the 12 years because, because we took that seriously. We just look at some of the local compassion ministries we've connected with. We look at the, the, the missions, how, uh, how global outreach has grown so much in our congregation, and it's been great. But you know what? We've never reached our full potential. We've never reached our full potential here. And yeah, I'm the senior pastor, so I'll take a good load of, of the blame for that. But you know what? We're all in this together, right? It takes us all. It takes us all. We've never gone to that highest level that we could. But it's still possible. It's still possible because the church is always the church of Jesus Christ. And if leaders change or people move on, Jesus is still in charge. So the opportunity is still here. And my plea, which I firmly believe reflects God's call and God's plea, is be that church. Be that church. Determine you're going to give yourself to what's most important, what's most fulfilling. Your passion is going to be where you need to start. You know when they train Disney employees, one of the things they talk about is passion. And one of their sayings is, one with passion is better than 40 who are merely interested. You've probably heard that in some different context. One with passion is is better than 40 who are merely interested. So get your passion ramped up. Second of all, start dreaming, start thinking about what could be done. Donald Trump, billionaire. I read a quote one time. He said, well, if you're going to be thinking, you may as well think big. He certainly has, hasn't he? In his own work, he thinks big. So why not think big? Think really big. Why not not actually push the limits a little bit? So when my second oldest son graduated from college in Southern California, the end of last spring we went down to see his graduation and we only had a few days. We had to fly down, fly back. We just had a few days time and we've got lots of friends. We got family. We had business. We had all these things we had to do there. We're trying to squeeze it all in. And my son, John, who's my third oldest son, comes along one day. He goes, he goes, dad, I think we should all go to Disneyland. So he lives near Disneyland. He goes, dad, I think we should all go to Disneyland. John, first of all, we don't have time. We do not have the time. Second of all, We don't have the money. It's hugely expensive. And John goes, well, what if I could work it out? John, it's not going to work. What if I could work it out though, dad? Okay, you go work it out. Bring me back a plan to see if this works and we'll see what happens. Now, you got to know, this is my son, John. This is what he loves. And so he comes back and he goes, dad, here's what I got. First of all, seven people, because seven of us, our family plus boys, girlfriends, seven get in for the price of one. Seven get in for the price of one. And I know you're worried about time. So we'll leave right after lunch, after this event. We'll go. We'll be at Disney by one. We'll stay there for like six, eight hours. We'll be out. We'll be back. You'll be back home. He's got this whole thing worked out. Is this for real, John? Yes, for real. And he was right. He pulled it off. He pulled it off. We went, seven of us for the price of one. We go to Disney. We get in the gate. And and he and his girlfriend, Amy, have already worked out the plan for how to get on all the best rides in the right time. And he's got the app on his phone, right? On his iPhone. So as soon as we get off a ride, he already knows where the, 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 uh, the next line is that's the smallest. And so when he pops off a ride ahead of us, he's 20 yards away by the time we're getting off the ride. And we're running to catch up with him because he's got it fixed so that we can get through everything we want to do at Disney in that short period of time. And we got through all of it, but one. Finally, at the end of night, we just were like, the rest of us were like, John, we can't go. So he and his girlfriend went, and they did the last one, but we all said, we're too tired. We just got to go back. But it was a great time. It was a great time. Now listen, why don't we do that as Christians? Why don't we, why don't we sit around in coffee shops when we're, when we're drinking coffee? Why don't we sit in our community groups and go, what could we do? What could we do? Now, now I got to tell you, a lot of people already have done that here at Northwest Hills in various ways. Thank you for, for stepping out to create things that are already in existence. But why don't we think like that more? You can do it. How about if you begin looking that way and you, and you do it? You, you take that challenge on. You take that challenge on. Remember, remember the sayings. I've said it before. It was from C.T. Studd, a great missionary of ages past, and he said, "The gamblers for gold are so many, but the gamblers for God are so few. Where are the gamblers for God? Where are the people who are willing to step out and take some risks?" You ever heard the saying, success is a child of audacity? When's the last time as a Christian you were audacious in thinking about what we could do for God? William Carey, another great missionary who just accomplished so much by going out practically solo in these places, he said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Be that church. Be that church. As you do so, you know, you're going to have to adjust your priorities because just like in the story, you know, the one guy, one of his problems is he's too tied into his wealth. He's buying more land, right? And, and, that's, and there's nothing wrong with buying more land or having a great business, but it was starting to get in the way of his relationship with God. And then there's a second guy. He's got his 10 new uh, teams of oxen, right? I'm going to go out and try these things out, you know? And he, he loves doing that. He loves his oxen. Like, you know, some of you guys love your tractors or whatever, your four-wheel drive today. But you know what? It became a stumbling block. And then there's the third guy who's Who's tied up in his relationships and his family, which is great. You know, a number of years back, Christians had to step up and go, hey, you know what? We haven't been paying enough attention to our family. We've got to turn our hearts back to our family. And that was a good thing to do. But then you know what happened after a while? We realized we had almost turned family into a cult. And people started writing articles saying, you know what? We're we're putting our family so highly, we're not even even worshiping God anymore with our families. And so there's always going to be something that's going to stand in the way and say, you have to decide your priorities. The saying that that if the good things keep you from from enjoying the best things, then those good things are now bad things for you. And so we got to keep that in mind. Say, well, I want to do this, but you know what? I have limited gifts and abilities, and also, also, I'm a, a, I'm already busy. So that's why God says, work together. Pool your resources and your brain power and your gifts and your skills. At a different time uh, this summer, when when my family went down with other members of Laurel's family and were cleaning out a ranch house, literally a house on a ranch that hasn't been taken care of for a number of years. And, and uh, as we were there, we, we had these massive amounts of jobs to do. And one of mine was, was the garage area, which included a very large shop in the back of it and three storage rooms. This is, this is a ranch, right? They got lots of stuff. But we got to clean it out. And there's chemicals and there's tools and there's building materials. There's all this kind of stuff that's out there. And so I'm, I'm, I'm down there working by myself. My, my son John's girlfriend, Amy, we got to know uh, her parents recently, and we invited them to come up just, just to have fun on the ranch while we were there. So they show up, and uh, her dad, Bill, is there. Bill comes down in the garage while I'm starting this work on the garage, which is totally overwhelming. He's been a, he's been a building contractor for 35 years. And he just steps in, and, and he's like the best help ever. Because he's looking at we look at this, this, these four saws hanging on the wall, and he goes, that's a really good one. Grab that one, grab that one. Those two are junk. Throw them away. I would have sat there for 10 minutes, you know, looking at them, trying to figure it out. He looks at the building materials and goes, this stuff is terrible. Get rid of that. I don't know why they bought that in the first place. Hey, that stuff's really good. And he's just helping me for a whole day in there. Because I got the knowledge of the ranch, and I got the knowledge of what needs to happen there. He's got the, the skills to know what's good and what's bad. But it's the teamwork that makes it happen. And that's what, what you need to be doing is diving into that teamwork. So there it is. There's, there's my last challenge, except for one small, tiny one I'm going to put in here at the end, and it's this. It's on a more individual level. It goes like this. Remember Jesus when he decided to tell this dinner story? The guy shouts out, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God that certainly revealed uh, that this man who shouted that out thought that that he was one of God's people and he was going to be in the kingdom of God. But based on what we know of the spiritual character of most of those present at the dinner and how Jesus responded to this one man in the parable he told, it's highly likely that that man, along with many others there that day, really didn't have a place in the kingdom of God. Because they, they, they thought that a relationship with God was based on belonging to a religious group. They all belonged to the same group. They thought, well, we're in because we're part of this group. They thought that being very religious, you know, going to, going to the temple, doing all the things they were supposed to do every week, they thought that, was, that made them right with God. And they really genuinely were trying to be good people, but they were trying so hard they became super legalistic. But they were trying to be good people, and they thought, well, all that means we're in the kingdom of God. But that's not how you come into a relationship with God. It's not how you, you know God, you walk with God. To, to do that, you've got to accept the invitation, You've got to accept the invitation of of God. And the invitation of God says, listen, come to me. Come to me, and and you need to come humbly and confess your sins and ask forgiveness from me. And you need to make an about face from self-rule of your life and from regular engagement in sin, and you need to make me the ruler of your life and, and follow my instructions. And trust in and love and learn from Jesus as you walk daily in a relationship with him. That's what it means to accept this invitation. So accept this invitation. Jesus made it clear those who come on their own terms don't get in the kingdom. Verse 24, I tell you, none of these men who were invited will taste of my dinner, but those who will accept the invitation, they come in. And I bring this up right now for the very simple reason of this, that it's entirely possible today that you're here, that maybe you've been here a long time, and especially that maybe you've even been here for the 12 years I've been here. And you keep sitting here in in these uh, these chairs, and you're listening, and you're learning, and you're knowing about God, and, and you've never really accepted the invitation. And I just wonder, and I just don't want to leave this place uh, this day without, without, without just challenging you and saying, is that really where you want to be? That you just keep trying to, you know, oh, hey, I do the good stuff, and, and you know, I, I, I'm part of this religious group here. But you never really have come and gotten to know God and, and followed his plan for your life. And I, I would be so disappointed to know that, that you, you are here today and just feel so sorrowful for you If I'm done here and somehow you haven't made that turn to God and I just urge you because God is so much seeking you and he has so much for your life and he wants to bless you so much, come on and take it. Listen, if you're still working through all the process, you're still learning. Well, that's okay. Just keep learning at least. If you're not ready today, but some of you, maybe it's time and this is the day you go, okay, yeah, you're right. I don't want to be like those idiots who who back in that parable, just you know, kind of doing their own thing. I want to get this right. Just a couple of minutes here, we're going to sing some songs, worship songs. Communion tables are around that everyone's free to go and access. And as that happens this morning, you know, that's, that's a good time for some of us just to renew this commitment to being, being people that God wants us to be, being those servants who are outreachers. Maybe for you, it's really coming and saying, you know what, for me, it's... <laughs> I did, come, I did come and join the family. I just, just haven't really been living like it for a while. And this is going to be your moment to say to God, God, as I remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, this is my turning to you today. Maybe for some of you to just, to just say, this is my day that I do cross that line. In fact, I'm going to pray right now, okay? So let me pray for us. God, I thank you for this incredible church all the wonderful things that have happened in it, all that I've been able to joy, enjoy. And I pray that you would bless it, Lord, continually. I pray you would make it ever greater in ministry than, uh, than I could even imagine. I pray that you would, you would, Lord, do wonderful, spectacular things here. Lord, that I'd be able to still hear about it and celebrate it with you all. And Lord, uh, I also, though, think today that there's some decisions that need to be made. So I pray, Lord, that you would bless those who are seeking you Lord, in this worship time, hear us as we call upon you. For some of you who maybe just don't even know how to pray this this morning, I'm just going to pray a prayer. And and if you want to pray alongside it, because this is where you need to be, then pray it in your heart to God. Heavenly Father, thank you for being a, a loving and seeking God. Thank you for being a caring God who keeps coming after me. Thank you, Lord. For your son, Jesus Christ, who paid the price for my sins on the cross. Thank you that through him, you offer me forgiveness. Lord, I ask for that forgiveness. I yield my life to you to learn from Jesus. To walk in the power of the Holy Spirit rather than trusting in myself. Trusting and believing you. Yes, Lord, I make that choice today. I do so gratefully, Lord, and I want to be one of those outreachers that serves you in the most important work in the universe. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.